One could say that the account before us today in John 9 is one for all occasions. It is quoted in a film with three Oscar nominations in this year's Oscars, 2017. Christians sing about it weekly and the world over, we did today. And unbelievers have made a habit of singing about it as well. It was even featured at Woodstock in 1969. The account I'm speaking of is Jesus healing the blind man in John chapter 9. Believers love it. Sometimes for strange reasons, unbelievers love it. But we hear about amazing grace all over the place. And we're going to hear about it this morning. We're going to see where it comes from, and we're going to see that it comes from Jesus as he heals the blind man, and he makes a point about physical healing and its importance, but he also makes a point about spiritual healing and its importance. So if you haven't already joined me at looking at the ninth chapter of the gospel of Jesus according to John, I invite you to do that. A few things to keep in mind as we look at the chapter. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem. Uh, He's Around the temple is the context and the setting. Uh, Also, this is the sixth sign uh, we see in John's gospel account. And the way John's gospel account works is there are all of these signs that Jesus does, these objective, real, before eyewitnesses, uh, actions that he does to prove in light of chapter 20 that he is the one. He's the one the Old Testament talked about. He is the long-awaited, promised one who will deliver, who will save, who will rescue, okay? And so this is the sixth one of them. You should also keep in mind, by John 9, um, tensions are, are really escalated, uh, and Jesus is butting heads again and again with the official religious leaders who are supposed to be experts in the Bible, uh, and he is conflicting with them or having conflict with them, and it's really going to escalate here as well. Also keep in mind as we look at this, because I don't want to, I, I don't want to read the whole thing right now, we'll, we'll just work our way through it, and I've already alluded to this, it's a, it's a physical healing that happens, no doubt about it, and physical is important to God. God made us physical. And he also uses the physical healing to talk about spiritual sight. And spiritual is important to God. We tend to get ourselves in trouble when we emphasize one or the other. Both are important. Jesus addresses both of them. But just so you know, at the end, he makes a real big point about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. So it's both and. And finally, if you would just be looking for, especially if you're a note taker, if you're looking for things we're going to learn in John 9 that are true about Jesus. It's a great place to go and read and say, what do I learn here about Jesus? That's one of my favorite ways to read the Bible. I commend that way of reading the Bible to you. What do I learn about Jesus here that will cause me to know who he is, that will cause me to respond appropriately, to to cause me to look to him uh, adequately, that will cause me to worship him as he is worthy. And we'll have all sorts of things we can learn here about Jesus in John chapter 9. With that said, let's jump in and let's begin looking at the first verses in the chapter. It says, as he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man 
or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not this man, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Let's pause there. This man, not just has become blind, this man is born blind for a purpose, a greater purpose, so that the works of God might be shown in him. And we're going to get to that part. Jesus has an opportunity here to show the works of God in God's compassion, in God's mercy, in God's power to restore. So we're going to see that, but let's, let's at least pause and say, what are they, what are they asking? And what is Jesus really saying? What they're asking is what people sometimes mistakenly ask. Some of you perhaps have mistakenly asked it, especially when you're younger in your Christian life. And you say, well, suffering and, sin, suffering and death comes because of sin. And so when you look at your life or you look at the lives of others and they're suffering or dying, you say, what's the sin? Right? That's at least what at least one of Job's friends brought up to him, and, and he was mistaken. And that's what his disciples are asking. Was it the parents that did something? Been blind from birth? Or, or was it something that, that God knew he was going to do? Uh, which one is it? And Jesus says, no, it's not either one. Jesus doesn't mean to say, okay, I know he doesn't mean that this man is sinless. You know that as well. New Testament and Old Testament teaches that everyone is sinful, okay? He doesn't mean that this man's parents were sinless, right? Whether we're in Romans chapter 5 or Romans chapter 3 or Psalm 14 or the words of Jesus even that talks about people being sinful, all of them, he's not meaning that, right? But make sure you have a clear understanding of theology well enough to know when you put all the pieces together, sin, excuse me, suffering and death do come because of sin. But they come because of the sin of Adam who represents the human race and leads us all into suffering and death because that's the consequence of sin. That's true. But sometimes we make the mistake like these disciples are making, like some of us have made before, at thinking that it's always a one-to-one -one correlation about personal sin. It can be. Read 1 Corinthians 11. But it's not always. And so it's a mistake to conclude, hmm, you're, you're, you're sick, there's sin involved. You're dying, there's personal sin involved. It's not a one-to-one -one necessarily correlation. And Jesus is making the point here. I realize that's a whole lot of theology and it's still early in the morning. It's true, suffering and death come because of sin. But it's not true to say that it always comes because of your own personal sin and it's a one-to-one -one thing. I know these things to be biblical. I know that Jesus believes these things and teaches these things and it would be helpful for us to think more clearly about them. Okay? And so what he does say though, if you look in verse 3, this is happening. This suffering that does come because of a fallen world, yes... 
is happening, notice at the end of verse 3, that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he's going to tell, he's talking about what he's going to do. God works in a broken world with sinners who are suffering and are dying, and he engages and he shows his power and he shows ultimate hope in Christ. And that's the exciting part in our passage here. If we keep reading in verse 3, it says, Jesus answered. Oh, I already, I already read that, didn't I? It's to, to put on display. Let's go to verse 4. He, he, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he's using the analogy. Most people don't work at nighttime, especially when you're talking about this pre-industrial kind of society. And that's, that's that's not what's normal. You do your work in the daytime. And he's saying, when I'm here, it's like daytime. So these things must be done to, to put on, to be put on display and to, to show everyone who I am. This is the time. There's urgency. And, and the urgency is in me helping this man. It's physical help, no doubt. But even in verse five, he's giving us a preview that it also has to do with spiritual because in verse five, He says, I am the light of the world. And he's already talked that way in relationship to he's the savior to save from sin. So he's already giving us a hint. Physical restoration, but there's spiritual componentry uh, elements involved. This is a special time. There's There's a unique thing that's happening here. That may become significant in light of the fact that we're going to see it's the Sabbath. Because he's going to be criticized for healing on the Sabbath. This is a special time. It's day and you do this while I'm here. But more about that later. Verse 6 says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's not, you know, miss the obvious at the end of verse 7. He went. He came back. What? He came back seeing. It's extraordinary, right? It's unexplainable apart from divine intervention, doing the works of God that might be done in him. So from birth, he's blind and he goes and washes and he comes back seeing. And obviously that's the point. It's kind of interesting that it seems to be in kind of a nonchalant kind of way. It's just a statement of fact. In light of who Jesus is, this is just what happens. To point to the extraordinary nature of Jesus. This is why I chose Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 42 for scripture reading. This is pointing to him being Messiah. This is what Messiah does. He has the power to do this, to bring restoration. He is the chosen one. He is the servant who will deliver and save his people from their sins. It's a messianic sign proving that he's the one. If you're just joining us, Messiah is a super important word from the Old Testament. It's a king word. It's a, uh, the king is anointed, designated, okay? And there's going to be a special, unique king who will live and rule and reign forever. But he's not just a dominant ruler, though he is that. He's a deliverer king. 
It's where we get our concept of salvation. He saves, physically brings restoration as well as spiritually. And Isaiah's chock full of this. He's the one. It's another sign objectively pointing to him as the one. Now you might be asking, why the spit, why the mud, and why the washing? I don't know. Jesus doesn't always do it this way. Sometimes he just says, you're healed and you're healed. So we we don't know for sure. And we can read Jewish history and what was happening at the time. And sometimes people thought spit was magical. Sometimes they didn't. Or it's unclean in light of Leviticus. But then you you can read a lot of pages. I, I don't know exactly. It would be really probably dangerous to say, here's how we know. Is it recreation because God took dirt and, and formed and made human beings and this is recreation? Maybe. But for whatever reason, Jesus chooses, chooses to, he chooses to do it. <laughs> for whatever reason, he chooses to do it, perhaps just to be more, all the more provocative. Because as we're going to see, it's Sabbath. And the Pharisees at this point in time would consider taking dirt and rolling it or moving it to be akin or likened to kneading, like kneading bread. And so Jesus is working on the Sabbath and he's a lawbreaker. Could be. All that's going to happen. One thing we can know is this guy didn't think it was gross, so you should stop. <laughs> Maybe he did, but he was sure happy after the fact. As far as the location is concerned, I don't want to say too much about this, but it is a historical point of interest for some of you because you've been to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, it's at the end, at least most scholars think this, there's a little bit of debate, it's at the end of Hezekiah's Tunnel. Okay, so Hezekiah in 710 BC builds a tunnel. Has a, he issues a decree to have the tunnel built? You can read about it a little bit in Second Kings 20, verse 20. It's to have water. Um, and at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, when you walk out, there's the pool of Siloam. Who's been brave enough to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel? I see at least one person. To, I see at least two people. I want nothing to do with it. I did it once. It's terrible. Flashlight in mouth. And it's sometimes you have to hunch, crouch down. And sometimes you have to do this. And it's a third of a mile long. And it's pitch black at times. And if there are people in front. Oh, oh, by the way, the one and only time I did the water sometimes was up to here. Making my heart do this right now. Terrible. And then there's slow people in front of you, and you're just like, this is, this is not good. I'm going to die here. <laughs> so, on the next Israel trip, if you want to do Hezekiah's Tunnel, go for it. I'm going to be drinking an espresso uh, somewhere and saying, jeesh. Anyway, I'm getting nervous just thinking about it. But, historical place, reality, at the end of the tunnel, you've got this pool where people would go and this man is sent there to clean off the mud. And he comes back seeing. That's the important part, not Hezekiah's tunnel and claustrophobia. Verse 8. 
the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. I wrote in my margin, I was blind but never deaf. Right? I'm right here. I'm the guy. Verse 10. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? Verse 11. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So they call upon the authorities. Let's get the theologians involved. Verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day, dun, 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 when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If you've read the Bible much, you read the New Testament much, you go, oh, Sabbath, Saturday, Shabbat, this is when you don't work, and it actually is a law come from God that you don't work. But what we do sometimes, us right-winger, conservative, fundamentalist types, is we say, if God says don't do something, and there's the boundary, let's build a fence even back further, because less is always more, or more is always less, whichever one it is. More conservative is better. And then we make laws, and then all of a sudden we play God. And that's what had happened with the Pharisees. There's an intent to have a day of rest. Jesus even said it's actually for people to benefit from. But the Pharisees had turned it into something it was never intended to be. And it's rules and rules and rules and rules and more rules and more regulations. And so let's go get the Pharisees because for Jesus to heal on Sabbath is a problem. Right? This isn't the first time this has happened. Okay, here we go. Verse 15. So the Pharisees asked, or, or again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Once was blind, but now I see, right? Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. My quick little list. Sabbath is broken, broken in their mind because it wasn't a life and death situation. Jesus should have waited till the next day. Another one, kneading the clay like bread was included among the 39 classes of work forbidden on the Sabbath. Next one, later Jewish tradition at least. We don't know if it was uh, happening at this time or not, but we have it written down a little bit later. Stipulated that it was not permitted to anoint eyes on the Sabbath. We already talked about this stuff though. John chapter 5. But do listen to John 5. John 5, Jesus says in verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My father my father is working until now, and I am working. He, he's, he's Lord of the Sabbath. And they knew what he meant in John chapter 5 because he's claiming to be God, and so they wanted him killed. God, God upholds all things. Or how about Mark chapter 2, verse 27? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, let's get back to our text. There's a fight amongst the Pharisees. 16 says, But others said, 
How can a man who is a sinner, i.e. he's breaking the Sabbath supposedly, do such signs? And there was a division among them. Let's keep going. More could be said about that, but we, let's just keep the focus, the focus, and move to 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Now, I, I marked in my notes, just paying attention, in verse 16, This man is not from God. The guy's got a little bit of boldness at least. He's a prophet. He's saying he is from God. He's not saying he is the, the anointed Messiah. He's not saying he's the one yet. He's not worshiping yet, but he is willing to say he, he's definitely from God. There's some boldness here that he's even disagreeing with the religious authorities. And as we're going to see, they have power to do serious harm. Maybe we should stop here, and, and this is kind of a history lesson. We're just working through what happened here, and maybe I should pause and just remind you why this is really, really, really important to every single one of us. It's really important because we're going to have an opportunity to see who Jesus really is. Objectively before witnesses. Historically. It's really important because... While we might be able to physically see now, and we might be healthy or relatively healthy now, we won't always be. And we need a Savior, a Deliverer from our physical decay. And as we're going to see, we're going to have an opportunity to see, He also is the one who delivers spiritually. And that would apply to every single one of us. This is a passage that can, that can encourage us, can bolster our hope and our confidence that He really is the one. And as we're going to see as well, He's going to be worshipped because of who He is. And every single one of us can use more reasons to worship Jesus because if He and He alone is the God-man, He's worthy of our worship. Just some reminders. Okay, the plot thickens. There's conflict even amongst the Pharisees. How about verse 18? The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, and I wrote in my margin, with caution, if, down, down, if not downright evasiveness, because of what we're going to see in verse 22. There's a cost to be paid. His parents answered, uh, I inserted that, it's not inspired, but you get the idea. We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. See, they're, they're afraid, and, and rightfully so. Of age, from what we read historically, he's at least 13. He can give legal testimony. He could be much older, but he's at least 13. 
It says, he will speak for himself. Then 22, his parents, in the parenthesis there, said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that is the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. See, see, that tells us there's, there's already been enough conflict with Jesus that if you associate with him in a serious, formal way, you confess him as the long-awaited promised deliverer, you're going to be put out of the synagogue. So there's some stakes involved. And think about what it would mean to be put out of the synagogue. So you're, you're religiously cut off. It's like you're being cut off from God. Even think in terms of the temple where sacrifice is made, because that's still going on. You, you, the last thing in the world your soul wants is to be put out. But it would also, in this kind of context, have social ramifications. Okay? There's not a distinction between church and state. Synagogue and state. They're a holy nation. This is bad for your business. This is bad for your family life. This is bad for you. It's really bad. So they're afraid. So they say, talk to our son about it. Therefore, his parents said in verse 23, he is of age, ask him. 24 says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. It's a way of saying, tell the truth. Irony, irony, irony. Right? If anybody gives glory to God, it's been Jesus and now those who are beginning to trust in Him. You could even read it as the negative. Stop your deception. Stop your lying. Give glory to God. Tell the truth. We know. Then why are they asking is what I want to say. We know that this man, referring to Jesus as we will see, is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. This is worth emboldening in the text. One thing I do know. That though I was blind, now I see. There it is. I'm not a theological expert. I don't know all the ins and outs. I, don't, I can't parse your debate. I can't settle the debate. But one thing I do know objectively to be the case, I was blind and now I see. And you can hear the song in the back of your head. That is just great, simple, simplistic, young Faith beginning to see Jesus for who he is. And I don't know much. I don't know about infralapsarianism. I don't know about superlapsarianism. But I do know that I was blind and now I see. It's awesome, really. It really is awesome. Twenty six says, They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. He's getting brave. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I, I chuckle with you, but I, I don't really know how to read it, you know. Was he smirking? Was he snarling? Was it just total naivete? I don't know, but it's good. And they 
reviled him, saying in 28, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. So that's, that's meant to be striking, I think, for us as readers who've read the first eight chapters. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Well, we've been learning about where he comes from for eight chapters. He comes from heaven. He's the eternal pre-existent one. He's the one who came to explain God and to interpret God for us. Oh, not only that, remember in chapter eight, he is the great I am. He's the great self-existent eternal one. He's the great God of Moses. Which shows how far adrift these so-called Bible believers had become. We're the disciples of Moses. Jesus is the God of Moses. This would fit Jesus' rationale earlier. Therefore, what? Moses, they're not disciples of Moses. They're imposters of Moses. They're imposters. They're faux disciples. You know, that's where I wish we could just like do the, the, like this super perfect memory, remember everything we've read in the first eight chapters, but we can't do it. But it's building, 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 building. Where did he come from? Talk about spiritual blindness. And I don't think we're reading too much into that to come to that conclusion because he's going to come to that conclusion. This man sees. And they're as blind as could possibly be. Where did he come from? Right? But now the man born blind becomes the teacher, so to speak. How about verse 30? The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Ha ha. 31. I mean, it, we should keep going. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, is all of his thinking perfect? Is all of his perfect, uh, is all of his perfect thinking? I don't know. But he's on the right track. His thinking is the right kind of thinking. He's being reasonable. He's being rational. He's on the right target and he, on the right track and he gives him a zinger. 34 says, they answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. That's what we do, right? When, when our, our logical argument doesn't work, we just call them names. We all do it. They're just calling him an illegitimate child. There are worse ways to say that. The Pharisees are so upset, they're so spiritually blind, they can't even think straight about their own Bibles. Much of which they would have memorized. Isaiah 29, 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah, Messianic 
supposed to be their great hope they're waiting for. Isaiah 35, 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Isaiah 42, 7, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Let's move on to 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a messianic title. He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. Ah, I had to underline that. You have seen him. Blind man, right? You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And I think this is a good little preview into chapter 10 where Jesus is the good shepherd. He cares for his own. He watches over them. He doesn't let them go. He doesn't let them be harmed. And here they cast this man out because he looks like he belongs to Jesus now. And Jesus makes sure he's taken care of. And then verse 38, it's pretty, pretty rocking with huge implications. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Who and who alone should be worthy of worship? In light of chapter 8, the one true living God who has always been God is the only one who is worthy of worship. The one who is the great I am. And now we see this man coming to know who Jesus really is. I can't help myself. I, I did it last week. I'll say it again and again because of the lives we live and engaging different people. This is another case in point where we would never, ever, ever want to come to the conclusion that Jesus was not God or the Messiah, God-man, but he was a good teacher. Because a mere good teacher would never receive worship that is due only to God. Notice he doesn't shun the man. He doesn't correct the man. He doesn't do what the angel does in the book of Revelation and say, get up! Jesus receives worship because Jesus is the great I Am of chapter 8. He is a good teacher, by the way. He's just more than a good teacher. He's the object of worship, the legitimate object of worship. Now, for a moment, let's stop and, and just be impressed with the blind man. Maybe we should, before that, let's stop and, and notice something about false teachers. Whether or not they're formally false teachers or not, they're, they're, let's, let's stop and make sure we observe that sometimes people who, sometimes people can know one thing rather clearly but they can't see straight and they can't see other things that actually balance those realities out. These Pharisees are not stupid. They know Bible verses. They know certain things. And they probably know them well. I think they do know them well. But they can't put the pieces together. And I think it's important that we remember that. 
You know, even back to the sin thing. Which one sinned, this man or his parents? Is it true that suffering and death come because of sin? Yeah, it's true. Suffering and death come because of sin. But there's something that balances that out, that it's not always a one-to-one correlation. It may not be your personal immediate sin that led to this. See, a Christian, with the Spirit of God's help, can bring balance and can understand how these things can complement one another. And what I I guess I want to get to with you by way of application is, it's really important that you not just know one thing. That you know things that are true, but even how they relate to other things that are true. I'm trying to think of another good illustration of this. Well, I mean, there are people who think that that physical is bad. And only spiritual is good. And there's whole religions based upon that. And they don't believe anybody gets sick, and so you shouldn't go to the doctor because physical is an illusion. So they don't have funerals. And they use Bible verses. Physical is good. Bodily resurrection. But it's not only physical. It's not the only that you're in now. It's the spiritual that's good as well. A lot of times, you end up having a disaster in your life. And if it goes far, you're labeled a false teacher where you can't see how two realities complement one another. It's amazing what unbelievers can know. But it's also noteworthy what unbelievers can't fit together when it comes to knowing things. So don't be duped, how about this, by somebody who seems to know a lot of things but is completely out of balance. Just because they know a lot of things doesn't mean you should join their movement. How do those things relate? You know, we have people who are all who don't believe in predestination. People who believe in predestination to such a degree that there's no such thing as evangelism. And it becomes hyper-Calvinism and it's a disaster and it becomes cultic. Where there are two realities that are not contradictory, they actually complement one another. Well, it's an opportunity to learn. Okay? Don't follow anybody who knows Bible verses and anybody who knows something about a doctrine. Humanity of Jesus only. Deity of Jesus only. It's both. And how do they relate? Well, now let's get back to what we need to get back to here. How about that blind man? Number one, he calls Jesus a prophet in verse 17. It's pretty good. Number two, in verse 25, he defends Jesus as legitimate. Number three, in verse 27, he invites opponents to become disciples. Getting warmer, right? God is working in this man's life. Number four, he corrects false doctrine. Verse 34. And number five, In verse 38, he confesses Jesus as Lord and he worships him. That's a whole lot of learning, even balanced learning in a very short amount of time. Verse 39 says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see. 
like this man, right? And those who see may become blind, like the Pharisees who profess faith in God, but actually are spiritually blind. For judgment I have come into this world. That those who do not see may see. And those that see may become blind. By the way, did Jesus come into the world to judge? It's a trick question. In chapter 3, he said, I didn't come into the world to judge. But then he goes on in chapter 3 to explain what he means. And here he says, I came into the world to judge. Depends on what you mean. He came in John 3, it leads with, he came to be the Savior. See, God could have just sent him to be the judge because we would all deserve judgment. But God didn't do that. He shows love for the world and he comes, he sends his son as Savior. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Jew and Gentile, right? But in John 3, he goes on to explain, if you don't believe in Jesus, there's judgment. There's judgment already, verse 18. Because he's the one and only Savior. And so it's kind of a trick question. He comes as Savior, not judge. But in doing so, he comes as judge. And will give people what they deserve if they don't rest in him and his righteousness. Verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? I once heard an attorney say, you should never ask a question you don't already anticipate the answer to. Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, whether they said it apart from what's recorded here, or that's the implication, doesn't matter. We see your guilt remains. How about that, right? Maybe to put it in our terms a little bit, they're, they're saying, but we're good people. God is pleased with what we do. We don't need a substitute. We don't need a savior. We're law abiding. We do all the right things. We see, we know God. We know who he is. We understand the Bible. And Jesus is letting them know that that there proves, given the fact that they've concluded all the wrong things about him, that indeed they're blind. It's pretty harsh. It's pretty intense. It's pretty hardcore. Isn't it interesting that they're blinded by the light? Right? Jesus is the light of the world. And light is enlightening. But light is also blinding. And they're blinded by the light who is none other than Jesus. Jesus is wise in this passage. He understands how theology is complementary and not one doctrine competing with another doctrine. Jesus is wise. He's a wise theologian. Number one, we see. Jesus is Messiah. Number two, we see. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Number three, we see. Jesus is the legitimate object of worship because he's divine. Number four, we see. Jesus is compassionate to this man. Number five, we see. Jesus is judge. Number six, we see. Jesus is the necessary object of faith. Is that seven? 
I don't know, it doesn't matter. And Jesus, in anticipation, is the good shepherd we see who's going to care for those who believe in him even when, if not especially when, they're persecuted like this man's going to be. John 10 next week? I might have to take a month off just to get ready. John 10 is like awesome, extraordinary seeing and hearing from Jesus these great things like I lay my life down for the sheep and then saying I lose none of them. Awesome. Looking forward to that. Let's pray for now. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived and died and rose again, that he is the God-man, the eternal one who became one of us, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he came to save his people from their sins. He came as the deliverer, Messiah. We're grateful for him and for what he's done. We're grateful for the fact that he is the one who calls sinners like us to believe in him and have eternal life. We're grateful. May it encourage us this week no matter what happens. May we be steadfast because of the power of the Spirit in looking to Christ and not to ourselves. And may we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives because of the work of Jesus, that we would be loving and kind and gracious and merciful and patient and all of those other great things that come as a result of being united to Christ. In his name we pray, amen.